0: Good morning all, I hope you're really well this morning. So for those of you who don't know me, my name's Glenn. and uh, this is actually the second time that I've been given the opportunity to speak here. I think both Gus and Adrian are hoping that I can get something right this time so they're giving me another go at it, so I'm very pleased about that. Um, just as a way of a very short introduction, um, I've been coming to Oasis Church for about three and a half years now. Uh, I'm married to Ramona. And I have two daughters, Darcy and Phoebe, who should be up in their children's work. And here's a picture of them. So my wife doesn't actually like having her photo put up in public. So this is kind of a, a kiddie crime watch version of, of my wife. So if you see someone who looks like that, that that's who she is. <laughs> Look out for her. Before I get into the main talk this morning, I was encouraged to share with you, as we're on this journey of sharing 300 stories, just to share... A couple of stories of God's grace over the last few months uh, in my life. And I've got two that I want to share with you this morning. And both are linked to where I work. So I work at Cadbury's. Uh, I'm a buyer. A few woos for Cadbury there, I like that. Um, I'm a buyer, which is quite ironic in and of itself because the characteristics of someone, typical characteristics of someone who's a buyer, is someone who's very aggressive someone who's competitive and really out to get the last penny out of all the suppliers. That's completely the opposite of who I am, naturally. So it's kind of weird that I'm a buyer. Last year, I was given a big account to take care of in the UK, kind of one of our biggest external accounts. We spend a lot of money with them, and it was quite daunting because this company that we're dealing with, this supplier, so before I'll share how it works. We don't always make all of our products at Bourneville. We sometimes, I'll go now, shall I? There we go. But what we do do, no, we send send liquid chocolate. Imagine 25 tons of liquid chocolate in a tanker. We send it up to a supplier not too far away, and they convert it into a finished product, and then they send it back to us. I buy the services of that company. And this company that I manage now um, has a long history with Cadbury, supplying Cadbury for 25 years spend a lot of money with them but the guy who owns the company he's a really really sharp businessman really really smart and he knows the industry well he knows Cadbury very well and to many respects he knows he knows the business better than I do if in all fairness so I was kind of considering well how do I manage this account how do I go about dealing with this chap that if I try some cheap kind of buyers tactics on this guy He's going to wipe the floor with me, no doubt about it. So I thought, well, I need to really just try and bring in God's values and God's kingdom values within the relationship and treat this guy with respect, treat him with courtesy and honesty, uh, have respect for his team and his, his, um, all the things that he's achieved. Excuse me. I really. Just work with him in kingdom values, so over the past twelve months i 've been working with him with that kind of real emphasis on the relationship and two things have came out of that last year. firstly, he signed a contract that he was unwilling to sign for many, many years, which was an incredible breakthrough for us and secondly, at the end of the year, when you have this you know the yearly appraisal you get with your managers where they tell you 20 things you do well and then one thing you suck at. And you kind of focus on the one thing you <laughs> suck at all the time, that review. So in, during that review, my manager said to me, oh, by the way, I've had an email from Phil. And I'm thinking, oh, here we go. Here's the one sucky thing. And he went on to tell me that um, Phil, this guy, had emailed in, not unprompted, saying how well the account was being managed, how pleased he was that I was on the account. And how, um, how kind of it, the business is both performing better as a result of being on the account. And I just thought it was a wonderful kind of drop of God's grace because, in one way, I, like I say, I was not smart enough, not sharp enough to be managing this account, but through Kingdom Values, it's worked out really well. So that was my first uh, one. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, second one, again, linked with work. And this is. Um, I've got a friend at uh, Cadbury. I've got more than one friend, but this is a specific to one. Friend. I think I have. Um, I've got one friend who uh, her name is Aisha, and she's a Muslim, and she's very very strong Muslim. And we've been friends for a number of years now. She kind of she kind of forced her friendship on me, if I can put it like that. I was in the canteen one day and just quietly in the corner reading I think I was reading the Bible, and she, she always calls me the Bible basher, which is always a good thing for a friendship. So she spotted that I was reading the Bible, and, and since that day, she kind of kind of introduced herself, and that was it then. So we've been friends for years. She, we buy each other birthday gifts, and she buys us Christmas gifts, so good friend. And we have some really great conversations about faith. We, t- we challenge each other on why we believe what we believe, et cetera. This year, she went on holiday with her husband, and... On her return, we caught up, grabbed a coffee, and uh, just catch up. And during the conversation, she was like, Glenn, by the way, I didn't tell you. I was talking about you to an air hostess on holiday. I'm kind of thinking, I don't know where this is going. This is weird. This is going somewhere. And she went, yeah, I... She'd got into a conversation about the the importance of faith and, and religion. And this air hostess kind of said she didn't think there was any real place for it in the 21st century. There's no real need to have a faith and have a religion. It's almost something of an obsolete thing. To which my friend then went on to say, well, I know this guy at Cadbury who... Actually, his faith is so important to him, and it really shapes his worldview. It shapes how he engages in business, and and he really needs it. He he wouldn't really survive without it, I think. And a few days later, it kind of dropped, a penny dropped on that, that again, God's grace in that situation. Here we have a Muslim lady trying to convince a non-believer about the importance of faith by pointing to someone who follows Christ. And it was just a, it was just an amazing kind of revelation that only in God's grace and economy could those kind of conversations happen. So there's just two examples for me before going <laughs> onto the um the main talk for this morning. So I'm going to continue in the wonderful book of Ruth and i really fell in love with this book. It's a, it's a great book. And specifically this morning I'm going to focus on the person of Boaz. So we're going to have to kind of go back a little bit to go forward. I know last week we covered off in chapter 3, the curious incident in the night. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to work back a little bit and go back to, <laughs> to chapter 2 and look, and the purpose of that is to really look at who Boaz is, kind of some facts about him, who he was as a person, how Boaz then points us to the person of Christ, and really, what does that mean for us, here and now, in 2015? When I was kind of considering, how do I... Because when I kind of talk, I, I try to build a kind of thread that I can see that's going through the Book of Ruth, and I was trying to identify, okay, well, what, what's the takeout for me on this? And, and then to be, get a title that, that's reflective of that. I was trying to think of a title that sounded really intelligent, something like N.T. Wright would be proud of, or even more importantly than that, Bill would be proud of, so... And after many seconds of thought, I came up with the following title, I've Got Your Back. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. I've Got Your Back. Now, this title works for me for two reasons. Even though it didn't have the academic ring to it that I would have hoped, it works for two reasons. Firstly, when I come on to share with you what this actually means in a a short while, you'll see that it threads itself all the way through the Book of Ruth. The second reason is, I think it makes me sound still a little bit street and a little bit down with the kids, which, for me, when you consider that, I'm actually in the age of denial now. I'm at the age where I kind of think I'm still a little bit down with it, but as you can tell from my love of all things beige, <laughs> I've kind of not so much there. So for those of you who are maybe in that same place, not quite as down with it as, as I think I am, I want to share with you what the meaning of this is according to the Urban Dictionary, which again, I didn't really know existed until I did this talk. So, a person saying that they have your back, it means that they're there to help you out, They will watch out for you, they will take care of you, they will look out for your best interest, and there will be a second set of eyes for you. That means that they're going to help you out, watch out for you, take care of you, look after your best interests, and be a second set of eyes for you. When I consider that, and I consider the book of Ruth, the reason why I think it weaves its way through, because there are times in the book where you see that Naomi has Ruth's back. We can see times when Ruth has Naomi's back. You can see times where Boaz has both Ruth and Naomi's back. And the overarching thing is that God has got all of their back. And that's why this this title works. So before I come on to the main passage this morning, I just want to I think it's really important, even though it may be at the expense of repeating some of the stuff from last week. Reconnect us with the context leading up to the passage that I'm going to talk about this morning. So the headlines are, Naomi has tragically and sadly lost her husband. She's a widow. She's tragically and sadly lost her two sons. And to some degree, she's lost her daughter, her one daughter-in-law who has gone back to her homeland. Orpa. keep wanting to say Oprah. It's not Oprah. It's Orpah. <laughs> So there's sadness and tragic there. Then we have Ruth, who also has sadly and tragically lost her husband. She has also lost her sister-in-law. Both Naomi and Ruth have lost their security for the future and have lost their provision for the present. Both of them are kind of limping along this path of death and discouragement. It's their darkest, darkest hour before we get to this passage. And now Ruth has had to go off into a field and glean the land. And we know that there could have been inherent dangers with that. So I can just imagine Naomi almost pacing the floor on that day, thinking, I've lost my husband, I've lost my sons, I've lost my other daughter-in-law, kind of. And now Ruth has gone off to clean the land to prevent us prevent starving. And who knows what's going on with her. She could be being violated. Who knows? So this really is the dark moment in the story. The darkest hour. And then Ruth comes back. And then Ruth comes back. And not only does she come back, she comes back with food. So if we just look at... Ruth, the passage of Hope Ruth 2.19. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Now, some commentators think that they said, she said that just because she was sheer sure excitement of, of her coming back and with food. Blessed be the man who took care of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, this man is our close relative. He is is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the my said, he he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in somebody else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz and, um, to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest had finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. If we can just go back to the previous um, thing, I just want to pull out one point about this verse, um, where Naomi talks about he has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. There's two schools of thought here. One school of thought is that Naomi's talking about Boaz, and the other is that he, she may be talking about God, Yahweh. I kind of think with the flow of the conversation, it's probably Boaz, but it's open. So we've gone from this very, very dark place leading up to this, this this darkest hour, and all of a sudden, this passage is the turning point of the whole book. It's the turning point. It's the point where all of a sudden... Hope is back on the horizon. So all of a sudden, I can imagine it's almost when you look out and you see the sunrise, there's a glimpse of hope back on the horizon. They've gone from this darkness, death, despair, discouragement, and now there may be a chance that everything's going to be okay. There may be a chance that somebody's got their back. And the reason for that change, the person who causes that change, well, it's the man, Boaz. And that's where I just want to unpack this guy, Boaz, what he's about, and, and some facts about him. Oh, excuse me. Well, Boaz, first of all, Boaz was a Jew from Bethlehem. He, uh, his name most likely means, in him is strength. He's featured in the genealogy of Jesus. We can see that he's a, a descendant of Jericho, uh, Rahab of Jericho, a uh, Gentile, and some people think that's probably why he may be so open to other people of other lands. He's considered to be a foreshadow of Christ. So and this is a really important concept, so a, a kind of, as we see Boaz, he points us to Jesus. Jesus is kind of a greater Boaz. And just coincidentally, well not coincidentally, Ruth is considered to be somewhat of a foreshadow of the church. So it's important to keep those things in mind. I've come up with four words that I've kind of, to capture who I think Boaz and what he's about as a person. The first word, hopefully will come up. I should have done animation on this. Sorry, everybody. It should have come one at a time, but never mind. Anyway, firstly, the word that I associate with him um, is benevolent. Benevolent. We get the impression that Boaz Is a warm and generous and kind-hearted man. Even from the very start of the story, as he comes into the story, the first thing we get from him is that he puts a blessing on his workers. May the Lord be with you. I don't know about you. I mean, if my manager came in in the morning and rather than say, Darby, have you done those emails, which is how we talk at Cadbury, um, he kind of said to me, you know, I just want the Lord to be with you today. That would be a real kind of blessing, it would be, you can tell a caliber of a person, not just by how they treat their peers, but if there is a hierarchy, it's how people treat their kind of people who work for them. And we can see from the start that Boaz is a kind and generous man. He's a protector and a provider. He he provides food for Ruth. He gives enough so she can provide for Naomi as well. He's a protector because he wanted Ruth to work in his fields, probably knowing that if she went somewhere else, then she's going to more than likely run into trouble. So he was a provider, a protector, a kind, warm, generous man. And for that reason, the first word is he's benevolent. The second word I've got from him is affluent. Affluent. In the New King James Version of the Bible, it says that he's a man of great wealth. Now, think about wealth and money. In and of themselves, they're neither morally good or bad. They're neither right nor wrong. But the one thing that we know is that when wealth and riches are in the hands of a godly man or woman, those riches are going to be used for more than just their own interests. And we can see again with Boaz, he was affluent, but it wasn't just for him, it was for others. He was generous. The third word that I have kind of for Boaz is that he was a man of character a man of character we can see that he from previous chapters and previous weeks that he conducted his work his, his business with integrity he was a man who said one thing and he did the same thing again coming back to the curious incident in the night he he affirmed to Ruth that he was going to get this resolve this redeeming of the land the redeeming of her and he went out and did that and that's an amazing testimony for anybody when they say and do the, 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 the same thing. We notice that Naomi, he must have been known for being a person of that caliber because Naomi picked up on it with Ruth by saying he will not rest until the matter is settled. And here I just have a wonderful picture of Boaz kind of having this determination, having this passion, knowing that he's got to do something and going out and doing it and redeeming the land and redeeming Ruth. And he points us again to Christ at this point because you think when Christ set his face to the cross, he was determined nothing or no one was going to stop him fulfilling his mission to redeem the, the people. So you have Boaz and you have Christ and you have him pointing towards, towards the greater Redeemer. He, and again, a, a measure of a person's character is not only knowing the right thing to do but going about it the right way. With Boaz, he, he, there was another kinsman redeemer that was closer. There was another relative that had a closer, more of a responsibility to do this than, than what Boaz did. I get the impression between us that Boaz kind of liked Ruth anyway and probably was keen to do this. But he had the integrity to give the opportunity to the one that was closer. And he did it in an open forum. He got people around, witnesses around, and he went through it. So he was a man of integrity and also transparency. All of, these chari- all of these traits just point to a man who is a man of character. So that's the third word. So he's benevolent, affluent, a man of character. And then the final word is kinsman redeemer, which I've already mentioned a couple of times. So this term, kinsman redeemer, if you're a, a kinsman redeemer in Jewish law, you have a responsibility for family members. You have responsibilities according to the Jewish law. And there could be one of four responsibilities, uh, which hopefully there will be a screen for. The first one is that you may have the responsibility for an extended member of the family. Say for example, if your brother passes away and he leaves a wife and that wife hasn't had any children, you may have to marry her and have children and continue the family line. The second one, you might have to redeem the land of a poor relative if they've had to sell it outside of the family. The third one is that you may have to redeem a relative who's been sold into slavery. Or the fourth one, you may have to avenge the killing uh, avenge the killing of a relative. So if someone's been killed, you might have to take vengeance for them. Now, the thing about a kingsman redeemer, I take two things out of this kingsman redeemer kind of setup that God's put in, in the Old Testament. And the two things I take out of this is that isn't it amazing that God, in his wisdom, he set up a system where we have to have each other's back? If you're a family member, you've got to have each other's back and you'll have other people's back. So that's, that's incredible. And the second thing is the impression that I get from Boaz that even though there was an obligation on him according to the law, that he was more than willing to do it. More than willing to do it. So we have someone who's benevolent, he was affluent, he was a man of character, and he was also a kinsman redeemer. And for this reason, those characteristics we can again reinforce why he points us to Christ, why he is considered a foreshadow of Christ. When we think of Christ, we can't think of anyone who extended the hand of compassion and love to strangers and the marginalized more than Christ. I can't think of anybody else uh, um, that has committed to their mission with such passion when he went to the cross than Jesus did. And I can't see anybody else who's demonstrated such a love for humanity than to die on the cross than Jesus did. So we can see Boaz again points us to Christ so we have Boaz a foreshadow of Christ we have Ruth a foreshadow of the church we know from the story that Boaz had Ruth's back the question is how do we know that here and now in 2015 that Jesus has still got our back and really what does that mean for us if we know that. How do we know that he's still got our back? We only have to look around. You don't have to look too far, in fact. Turn on the TV. We can see that Christians are being persecuted and killed. We had first-hand understanding of that today. You don't need to go really beyond these four walls to probably know someone who we love dearly or people that we love dearly that are suffering with their health? Or people who may be here today, and despite a public church face, may be sitting there with loneliness and depression? How do we know with all of that going on, how can we be sure that, one, like Ruth had Boaz, how do we know that we've got Christ? Or how do we know he's got our back? But it's at times like that, when you're in your Naomi moment, when you're in your Ruth moment, that your faith really has to kick in. And faith comes from hearing the word of God. We know historically what Christ did on the cross for us. But at times like this, when you're, when you're struggling, like Naomi and Ruth, when everything seems to be against you, when, you know, starvation, death, all of these things We have to look to Scripture for our encouragement and our understanding that Jesus still very much has our back here today. But the point I want to make about this is we have to have an understanding of a balanced message. What I respect about Scripture most is that it gives it you as it is. It doesn't try to necessarily fluffy things up. It doesn't try and give you um, everything's going to be rosy in the garden. I mean, there are some arms of kind of teaching in the Christian faith uh, prosperity teaching where you name it claim it and everything's going to be well in life I kind of struggle sometimes with that because often I don't see how it lines up with scripture so much it's true that God blesses and God favors and God really you know his love is never-ending but in terms of how it manifests on earth, in terms of success and, and doing well and having all of the abundance of everything that we want, I don't necessarily see how that lines up so much. When we look at scriptures, so the first scripture of God is from John. These are the words of Jesus saying, in this world, there will be troubles. That's a great motivational speech for you there from Jesus. In this world, you will have Troubles. But the second part is, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I think it's really important we have to live with the tension that it's a both-and situation sometimes. We can get into an either-or mentality, which is either everything's going right and Jesus has got my back, or everything's going wrong and he's off somewhere, he's gone. It's not that. It's a both-and, and it's a tension we have to live with. It's a both-and in the sense that something can be going wrong. I can be struggling with my health. I can be struggling with my finances. I can be in my darkest hour. And at the same time, Jesus is right there, and he's got my back. When we look at the chapter from Romans, Romans 8, again, Paul talks about, so he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present Or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If we pull out some of the key words there, death, depth, demons. So even if people are coming against me, Christ is there and his love will never change. Even in death, Jesus' love I can never be separated from. Even in depths of sadness and darkness, Nothing can separate us, not time, not a person, not a place, not anything can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And we really should take encouragement from that. Some of us here today will be sitting here and the sun will be shining on our back. Others will be struggling. Others will be having challenges. And we have to take comfort that it doesn't matter. Whatever situation, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So we know it. it's in Scripture, it's a promise, and we know it. So what does difference does that make once we know it through and through, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, that he's got our back, he's there for us, no matter what. What difference does that make? Well, I think it makes all the difference as a person. It transforms who you are as a person. It transforms who you are, but also it transforms how you can overspill into other people's lives. When you know that Jesus has got your back, when you know that His love, you can never be separated from, when you know no matter what the situation, he's right there with you. No longer do you have to have fears, insecurities. And you can be more alive than you've ever been before as a result of this, I believe. And that overspills into other people's lives. When you've got that confidence and that security that Jesus is right there with you, it transforms everything. We can then become people who not only are transformed, but we can be people who can point to the one that puts hope back on the horizon. The one that, say, can take someone from death and discouragement and destruction to back to life in hope in him. I don't know how that works out in a person's life on earth but I know that he's got your eternal back. And if we point that way, he can rescue us from any situation. For me personally, I've kind of been on, from my younger days, I've been on that kind of a journey. So just to share a little bit about it myself, um, a little bit of a Boaz situation, but not quite. Um, I had a bit of a dodgy start to life, if I can put it like that. If that translates well, dodgy, I don't know. It's a dodgy start. So my mum had me when she was very, very young. My parents got divorced at a very young age. My mom, sadly, is not with us. She's an alcoholic and had all sorts of problems and stuff like that. And from a young age, I didn't really know the security that comes from what you'd get from two kind of secure, loving parents. And when you're in your formative years, that makes a big difference to your life. And for me, it had implications all through my teens and into my 20s, I found myself trying to overcompensate for insecurities by you know, dressing a certain way or trying to put a certain persona out there. And it was all because I didn't know anybody had my back from a young age. It was a case that I rejected people before they could reject me. It was kind of a fear of, of all of these things going on psychologically. Now, Like I say, that went on for a while, went into my teenage years, went into my 20s. And then, and then I met Jesus. And then I gave my life to Jesus. Such as Boaz, I was in that situation like where Boaz comes into the story, Jesus came into my story, or I came into his story, to put it more, in a better way. And from that day, of, being in, of having them insecurities, those challenges from a young age, everything was transformed. And I know it doesn't happen instantly for everyone, but for me, those insecurities, those fears, those challenges of not really knowing that someone's got your back just kind of disappeared straight away. I went from a place of sadness and loneliness, even though you, you wouldn't know it on the outside, and all of a sudden I had a true confidence in who Christ is. And I could, could almost kind of forget about the past to some degree. So I really encourage you this morning, when you know these scriptures, when you know the promises of God, when you know what Christ did on the cross, it will transform everything for you. When you connect with these scriptures, the world will tell you to take, 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 take. But when you know that Christ's love will never leave you and he's got your back, you can say Give. When the world will tell you to hate, you can say, no, I've got the love of Christ, and it's right there with me. You can love. And when the world says, hold on, hold on, because this is all there is, you can say, no, I've, Christ has got my back for eternity. I can let go. So I just encourage you this morning, connect with these scriptures, connect with the fact, and of just re-know, refresh yourself in the, in the knowledge And the understanding that Jesus has got your back. He's got your back. If you are sick today, he's got your back. If you're struggling financially today, he's got your back. If you're struggling with loneliness and depression, he's got your back. And he's right there with you. And I just want to leave you with one final scripture from Matthew. And in context, it's part of the Great Commission. The words of Jesus, And surely I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Thank you.